Okay, so what, I, what you have there, last week I noticed or I was told that um, this, this, um, this sheet that had the uh, kind of the, the schedule of what we're going to go be going through in the next few weeks, um, the other side did not have one of the things that you were supposed to do for your homework, and that is read over the gospel presentation. Well, now it does. So if you didn't grab one of these, go ahead and grab it even if you grabbed it last week, because the other side has what I need you to be looking at, and that is the gospel. It's called the gospel presentation. And so, so please grab that. This is our second class uh, in evangelism and missions. Again, the purpose of the class is to look at, at theological truths about evangelism, specifically about evangelism and missions as we get into it, but also to equip you and to encourage you and even exhort you to be active and intentional in taking the gospel to the people God has placed around you. I don't want it to just be um, stuff that you, you go away with there. Man, that was, that was interesting stuff. Hopefully you'll say that's good stuff, but I don't want you just even to say that. I want you to use it. So... I want you to be equip you, encourage you, those kind of things. Last week we walked through from Genesis to Revelation, really just to see the big picture of what God's doing in history. We saw that from eternity past to eternity future, God's bringing glory to Himself by saving sinners through His Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. At the conclusion of our time. We focused on three basic principles uh, or lessons that, um, that we need to, kind of implications. Does anybody remember those three things? Uh, the implications of the lesson. One was, the purpose of history is to bring God glory. God glory. Yes, okay. Very important. With, these are th- basic things, but things we need to remember when we talk about Evangelism. Number two, God is the ultimate evangelist. He delights in saving sinners. Number three, we have been entrusted with the honor and right responsibility of proclaiming the gospel. Right. Today, we'll discuss the great theological mystery of how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility fit together. And the reason we want to spend time thinking about this is because it's really, really important that we understand our role and that we understand God's role in evangelism. These theological truths have been debated over and over throughout church history. Lots of books have been written about the subject. The major and... and And major theological positions have been created because of it. You need to know this is really swimming kind of in the deep end of the pool, theologically speaking. I mean, we're we're talking about some really serious theological truths here. And that's not what I said this class was about. But we need to talk about these things, okay? And then we'll move on from there. As we look at this morning, we need to remember that this is... Uh, and this is important to think of this word picture. This is a theological high wire. The, the guy that's, you know, walking the high wire. 
So we need to think of it that way, kind of so to speak. It's really easy to fall off one side or the other. And if you do fall off one side or the other side, you're going to fall into error. So, so the, we need to understand that. The problem with understanding this doctrine is really, it, it gets to be, we let our emotions rule. And so, and so that's the problem with understanding it. I believe one of the most misunderstood theological terms of our generation is the term Calvinism. Over the years, I've been asked many, many times if I'm a Calvinist. And I've learned over the years, after being misinterpreted uh, many, many, many times, that I have to say, I have to qualify it. What do you mean when you say Calvinist? If you ask 10 people, uh, what is Calvinism, Calvinism, you'll probably get 10 different kinds of answers. But all those answers are probably going to hear, you're going to hear something like foreknowledge or predestination or election or sovereignty of God or any combination of those. So how do we make sense of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? And I, 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 I want to give you a little background about this first, and then we'll get into it. Uh, Ryan pointed out in our church history class a few weeks ago, John Calvin was a French theologian who was born in 1509 and died in 1564. And he was was a prominent figure in the history of the Protestant Reformation. He was considered the Reformation's greatest thinker and the Reformation's greatest theologian. Most of his influential years were spent in Geneva, Switzerland, where he taught and he pastored, and he preached, and he trained pastors, and he wrote. And his most influential works or writings were called Institute of Christian Religion. And they're known even to this day as one of the church's primary theologies over all Reformation history. Most people think these works are only about predestination. That's kind of what he's known known for. But it, well, other things too, especially when it comes to um, eschatology. But a discussion of predestination doesn't appear in those writings, in his writings, his most uh, influential writings, until the end of book three of his institutes. About 900, more than 900 pages devoted to other things and more than two-thirds of the way through the volume. So Calvin didn't even... Uh, get to Calvinism until 900 pages into the, his theologies. And all of those pages before that were devoted to the great doctrines of God and the doctrines of salvation and the glories of the cross. When Calvin does get to that, the doctrine of predestination and the sovereignty of God, he gives a bit of a warning or wise counsel. Here's what he says. First let them, that's those who are studying it, if you're studying that, remember that when they inquire into predestination, they're penetrating the sacred precincts of divine wisdom. If anyone with carefree assurance breaks into this place, he will not succeed in satisfying his curiosity, and he will enter a labyrinth from which he can never find an exit." For it is not right for a man unrestrainedly to search out things that the Lord has willed to be hid in himself 
and to unfold from eternity itself the sublimest wisdom which he would have us revere, but not understand that through this also he should fulfill us with wonder. He has set forth by his word the secrets of his will that he has decided to reveal to us. These he decided to reveal insofar as he foresaw, foresaw that they would concern and benefit us. Even Calvin says you can't be reckless about these doctrines. You can't make too many assumptions and you have to be willing to say these are the sacred precincts of divine wisdom that we, we only get a glimpse of. Listen, I believe there's some theological truths that seem to be impossible to fully understand or even wrap your mind around this side of heaven. So today I want to talk about what, what my good friend Rick Holland calls uh, a theological paradox. A theological paradox. A paradox is two truths that seem to contradict but are held to be true. Webster defines a paradox as a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense, and yet it's true. The truth of God's sovereignty and salvation and also man's responsibility in salvation is one of those paradoxes. In Romans 8 and then through chapter 11, it's easy to wrestle with this issue over and over and over and even though we can't fully comprehend it, we have to be able to see that it's there and believe it's true because God, because God says it's true. The Bible teaches that God is totally sovereign over our lives. Totally. Absolute sovereignty over our lives. But it also teaches that we are required to make our own decisions. And we are entirely and internally responsible for those decisions. God's, God's sovereignty does not negate human responsibility, but human responsibility does not negate God's sovereignty. So let's just take a few, few verses. Uh, I want to look at a few verses, and I'm going to fly through these. You can write them down if you want, but you're probably not going to have time to get there. Um, first, let's look at God's sovereignty how God's sovereignty is affirmed. Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. That sounds pretty sovereign. God's rule over a person's life. Ephesians 1.11, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Everything comes under the counsel of God's sovereign will. Romans 9.21 Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Absolute, unquestioned sovereignty. But if you only use those verses, you'd be out of balance. Because, listen to these verses, talking about man's responsibility. John 3.36 He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. 
looking at our belief. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Man's responsibility. Revelation twenty two twelve. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with, is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. So we can see that what we do in this life has, has bearing on eternity, what we do. Yet we also see that what God does in His choosing, in His predestination and foreknowledge, does as well. Sometimes we see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in the same, in the same verse or context. So uh, Luke twenty two twenty two. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So Jesus is going to be rejected, turned over to the chief priests by man, and then turned and turned over by, to the chief priests by man. So who's responsible? It's a, because he said the verse says it's according to God's plan. So who's responsible? Who's, be, who's responsible for Jesus being turned over? Judas or God the Father or? Both. 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 Right. Acts 2.23. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Who crucified the Son of God? The Father or wicked men? Both. The answer is yes. <laughs> Both. Both. Yes. Now let's see how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are presented in the same context in salvation, John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Absolute man's responsibility, right? But look at the next verse, verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God? In the same context, we see man's utter responsibility and God's absolute predetermined will. Now, everybody turn to John 6. John 6. I want you to see that here in these verses, Jesus himself, in teaching about these issues, holds them both in tension without resolving them. He doesn't resolve them. John 6, look at verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Isn't that clear? The reason I believe is because God made me believe. It is the work of God. No one believes without God's work happening. Now look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. There's no request to make sure you're elect and then come to me if you're thirsty. The gospel general call is come. Please come. If you're hungry, 
If you're thirsty, come. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not, not cast out. The Father's giving and we are coming. Which is it? It's both. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Clear, sovereign choice. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son of Son and believes, clear human responsibility, in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Do you see how these verses are held right next to each other? The, in the same verse, in the same context, right next in, to each other, and Jesus doesn't qualify it in any way. He just holds them both as true. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one will ever come to Christ unless the Father sovereignly draws that person to believe. But then, we don't want to start drifting the wrong way, so verse 37, or 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone, it doesn't say elect or predestined, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. Verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were and did not believe that who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. Verse 65, And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. This kind of tension in, in the church at large today causes all kinds of anxiety. But look what happened right after Jesus said these things in verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples, that this is, that's not the twelve, but people who were following him, withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They didn't like it, so they pouted and they walked away. So we struggle with this just the same way they did when Jesus taught it. But don't miss the fact that Jesus declares both truths to be true. If that, if that makes sense, okay? They're both true. We're called to believe. You're not called to see if you're elect. And yet, no one will believe unless God draws them and God makes them believe. Only God can harmonize what our minds see as contradictory. Logical incompat incompatibilities to humans are just not a problem to God's mind. J.I. Packer said this, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are taught side by side in the same Bible, sometimes indeed in the same text. Both are thus guaranteed to us by the same divine authority. Both therefore are true. It follows that they must be held together and not played off against each other. Man is responsible, moral, responsible, a responsible moral agent though he is also divinely controlled. Man is divinely controlled, 
though he is also a responsible agent. God's sovereignty is a reality, and man's responsibility is a reality too. Now, I've tried to show you that, that biblically, both realities are true. But since God is the creator and we are the creatures, God must have the priority. We must maintain that the ultimate deciding factor in the process of salvation is the sovereign grace of God. And we must affirm man is responsible. I don't believe that means that man has free will. Um, Man has no will. He's dead in his trespasses and sin. But he is morally responsible. But the balance of our salvation between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility sees the greater weight on God's sovereignty. If you want to be thoroughly biblical, we must see both truths as biblical, even if we can't completely wrap our minds around it. We have to hold them both to be true. If we're honest with the text of God's word, we need to affirm that what God says, by faith we believe it, even when it transcends our human reasoning and human logic. I love Isaiah 55, 6 through 11. It's a comforting passage, especially when we're thinking about this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. That means there is a time when he will not be found. And he will not be near. Whose choice is that? It's God's. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire. There's God's absolute sovereignty and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. All that is introduction, okay? And I know you're wondering, um, what does that have to do with evangelism? But remember I said, I talked about the theological high wire there. Um, The issue of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. If you fall off one side or the other, you fall into error. The first error, if you fall off the one side, is hyper-Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism says that God is fatalistic and men are just robots. It's all predetermined. We're just all on the same blind fate journey that only God has figured out, so we don't play any part of that anyway. That's not what Calvin taught, by the way, and it's not what the Bible teaches, by the way. That's gross error. But if you fall off the other way, you get into the second area, and that's Arminianism. And Arminianism says, salvation is entirely possible by man's free will and moral neutrality. 
Man is morally neutral. He has free will. He alone has the power of that choice. And that also is error and not what the Bible teaches. So let's look at both of these truths and see the implications they have on evangelism and missions. What does the Bible teach about God's sovereignty in salvation? First, what does it mean to be, uh, when we say God is sovereign, it means that God's sovereignty is basically His use of His power over His creation. His use over His power over His creation. It means that God has supreme authority over all things and is in complete control at all times and in all situations. God's sovereignty is seen in every aspect of our life, including salvation. So let's take a few minutes to discuss on how to think biblically about God's role in bringing sinners to faith and repentance. And there's many verses we could, go, we could look at for this study, but we'll focus primarily on Romans 8. You can turn there if you want. Romans 8, 28 to 31. Romans 8, 28 to 31. Somebody want to read that? We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? In these verses, we see what's been called the, the glorious chain of salvation. We see God's sovereign work to save sinners from eternity past, which is, which is foreknowledge, to eternity future, which is glorification, when those who have, been, who have trusted in Christ will be made perfect. This morning, I want to focus on three key words, and they are foreknowledge, predestination, and calling. First, let's look at the doctrine of God's foreknowledge. And again, we could, we could spend months on this. So we're just going to go look at it real quick. Again, you'll want to write some of these verses down. But um, the word for foreknowledge is used seven times in, in, uh, in Scripture. In 1 Peter 1.20, the word is used to speak of Jesus who was foreknown before the foundation of the world. In Acts 2.23 and 1 Peter 1.18-20. The words used to describe God's eternal foreknowledge of the betrayal of and crucifixion of Jesus. In Romans 11.2, Paul describes the fact that God foreknew his people Israel. In 1 Peter 1.1-2 and, and Romans 8.29, what we just looked at, it's used to describe God's foreknowledge of his elect. In 2 Peter 3.17, the word is used in warning about false teachers. So as we consider what foreknowledge mean, it means in regard to salvation, there's two basic options. Option number one, 
says that foreknowledge is the idea that God only knows what we will do. This view says that because God is all-knowing, He looked down through history and saw who would believe in Him, and then in light of their choice, chose and predestined them. God knew what they would do, so He elected. An illustration of this would be to throw the dart against the wall and then draw a bullseye wherever that landed. Uh, since you saw where it landed, you chose where the bullseye would be, right? And so that's kind of an example of that, of thinking about it. It's basing, basically how this view regards divine foreknowledge. Well, I would agree that God knows all things past and present and future. I would not agree with this view of foreknowledge because it makes God's action, actions just a reaction of what we would do. So there's option two. So, and so, I guess since there's only two options, and I just said that, I take option two. But here it is. Foreknowledge is that God knows what we will do. In this theological position, God, who is all-knowing, simply chose, according to his own will, certain people who he would extend mercy to. This means that God knew what he would do, and his decision has nothing ultimately to do with anyone else's thoughts or opinions. An illustration of this would be an architect who walks up to an open lot or an artist who stands before a bare canvas. They both can foreknow a building or a painting based solely upon what they choose to do. And this is what I believe the Bible teaches about divine foreknowledge. God does not simply have foresight where he knew what we would do but rather he has foreknowledge of what he would do and whom he would sovereignly choose to save and what's amazing about this is that God doesn't simply foreknow a decision or action that people might do but he rather knows the saints themselves personally for instance I'm not a Christian today because I'm I'm you know, any smarter or any, any more sensitive than anybody else. I'm a Christian because God graciously chose me. So God foreknows those he chooses to give the gift of salvation. You can write down Jeremiah 1.5, 2 Timothy 2.19. Second, let's look at the, divine, the doctrine of predestination. Again, Romans 8.29 here it says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. The word predestined simply means to mark out beforehand. It means to mark out beforehand. The chosen ones, the elect, God foreknew, God knew intimately before the foundation of the world. Those he marked out in his perfect plan to come to know him in his perfect way, in his perfect timing. The concept of predestination is pretty simple. God marks out people to come to know Him. The toughest part is the fact that God predestines some and not others. This idea is challenging to us. It's hard for us to understand. This is where the, the mind can't wrap around it, you know, totally. 
It's, it's a difficult uh, concept, but it's clearly thought through, uh, taught throughout the Bible um, many, many places. So God has predestined those whom he has chosen to receive salvation. That's Ephesians 1.5. Third, we need to consider the calling of the chosen to faith in Christ. Again, in Romans 8.30, it says those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Divine calling is the sovereign act of the Holy Spirit as he opens the heart of a sinner to respond to the saving message of the gospel. Think about these verses. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day, John 6, 44. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Acts 16, 14. So God sovereignly calls sinners by opening their hearts through, the, through regeneration to believe the gospel. That's John 6, 44, Acts 16, 14. Before we discuss what God's sovereignty means for us when we think about evangelism, let me just acknowledge that I, that, that I know that that brings all sorts of questions. And I don't have answers for any of them. So, so don't even ask. So, I mean, really, I, I, it is what it is. I mean, it, it, you can't make sense, total sense out of it. In the end, this is one of those subjects that we'll spend the rest of our lives. They've spent hundreds of volumes and all kinds, killed all kinds of trees writing about this. Um, we'll spend the rest of our lives trying to wrap our minds around it. And one day in glory, we're going to find out. And it'll make perfect sense at that point. Let me uh, say that I too have wrestled with this. I grew up in the United Methodist Church, and, uh, which is totally Arminian. And, uh, and so for me to hear this the first time, wow, I, I, I just... I, I ask all the logical questions, and there wasn't good answers for them, and so so I, I didn't I didn't you know I had to come to a point where I held to these conclusions. I'm not more loving than God. I'm not more merciful than God, and I'm not wiser than God. And if I can rest in these things, it helps me to trust in Him in the things I don't understand. Now, I know that the biggest question, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what I think the biggest question comes up here, and I'm going to try to answer it, and you'll see that it's not a perfect answer, all right? Does God create some people specifically to go to hell? Like, isn't that what you always want to know? If he chose some, does he choose others to go specifically to hell? Does he, did God does God create some people specifically so they'll go to hell? Do they really have no real chance to do anything about it? In the scenes of judgment we see in Scripture, God is never the one who's blamed for sin. Never. Adam tried it in the garden, but in the end, he and all other people are condemned 
for their personal rebellion. God does not make us sin. He does, however, harden some and allow them to go the way they wish. I think that's Romans 1, which is the way of rebellion. The Bible says that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you believe that? Right. In the end, people go to hell because, they're, because they willingly reject God. They don't go to hell because of what's called double predestination or God electing them to hell. People go to hell because they do not believe, period. I think that double predestination is not biblical, um, but it's a way for people to try to justify something in their mind. And it just gets you into a place that you shouldn't go. And so, um, I mean, there's lots of other questions and we don't have time to go through all that. And I don't know that I'm going to help you to, to, um, to change your mind uh, or help you believe it differently. You, in the end, by faith, you have to believe this. What does God's sovereignty mean for us when we think about evangelism? It certainly doesn't negate our responsibility to be active in sharing the gospel. It doesn't negate our responsibility to be intentional in sharing the gospel. It doesn't, it doesn't negate our responsibility persistent in sharing the gospel. Instead, it should cause us to rest in God's power, God's power to save. Listen, I, we went up to, uh, I visited uh, um, Tokyo, Japan one time, and I was, we, me and a couple others went, we were looking at, uh, uh, to support a guy there who was on the ground uh, training pastors to, in, in Japan, all across Japan, but he's living in Tokyo. And, um, and we, uh, and so he was trying to plant a church there, and he just needed help. And, and so we were one of the churches that we, he asked us to come see what the work would be and do, and so we did. And he took us into the tallest uh, building there, and it overlooked Tokyo. And we didn't see Godzilla, but we saw lots of, lots of people. Lot, I mean, as far as we could see, there was just houses and people and just just millions and millions of people out there. And one of us was just standing there thinking about a church here, planting a church, and, um, and the work that could be done here. And one of them said, man, there's just got to be God's elect out there. And it's, it was kind of a weird way of saying that, but there's got to be people out there that need that, that know Christ or that need to become believers that aren't believers yet. And, and we get to maybe partner, there's an opportunity to partner in to help people hear about Christ. That's what we're talking about here. It's not just, ah, they're all elect, so let's just walk away and they're gonna become, that's not what, that's not what the Bible teaches. So what are some implications for evangelism in light of God's sovereignty? 
Number one, I think this is in your notes. God's sovereignty teaches us to fully trust in His power to save sinners. God is the Savior, not us. All pride should be eliminated. We don't produce the results. It's not about us coming back here and saying, man, I, you know, I, I did this and I did that. No. God's sovereignty teaches us that to fully trust in His power to save sinners. Number two, God's sovereignty reminds us that we should have no fear in evangelism. You can't unsave somebody. I mean, you just can't. You can't say something to, that somebody's not going to get saved by. That makes sense. That doesn't even make sense either. So, the fact that God has set apart people to believe removes all fear, all of our fear. We don't have to fear this, but we do. Number three, God's sovereignty should encourage faithful evangelism, not serve as, as an excuse to neglect it. S- some object to teaching teachings about God's sovereignty and evangelism because they think it leads people to not share the gospel. If your theology leads you to disobey God's scripture, it's bad theology, period. I mean, that's just it. So three implications. What does the Bible teach about man's responsibility in evangelism? Wow, got 10 minutes. Well, God's sovereignty, I've already mentioned that it, it doesn't in any way negate our responsibility to be active, intentional, and persistent in sharing the gospel. So if that's true, then what, play, what is our responsibility? What, what role do we play? What does it look like to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel? And I would suggest that when we read through the Bible, there are three primary things we are called to do. Pray, pursue, and proclaim. Pray, pursue, and proclaim. First, let's look at prayer and how it applies to evangelism. To do this, turn to Colossians 2, Colossians 4, 2 through 4. Colossians 2, 2 through 4. It says... Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it make clear in the way I ought to speak. So here we see three principles about praying for the lost. First principle comes from Colossians 4.2 where we see that we are to be devoted to prayer. That word means to busy oneself with or to attach oneself to. Be devoted. So in regard to evangelism, we should pray. We should, we should pray before we share. We should pray while we share. And we should pray after we share. And also notice that the call for devotion is followed by call to attention. If you see that in, ver- in verse 2, again, keeping alert, be devoted, but keeping alert in it, being watchful. As we begin to pray, 
we must be watching. We live with, with expectation that God loves the lost and is opening doors for you and me to speak to those who need to hear the gospel. As we do this, we begin to see that God is at work around us in ways that we just never noticed before. And we're to do it with thanksgiving. We celebrate opportunities God given it, has given us and the ways He's working out the situation. And that keeps our focus on His faithfulness and His power rather than on ourselves. It means that we should plead with God to give us opportunities. We should be praying, Lord, open doors for me to share your gospel. In my home, in my neighborhood, in my workplace, with my friends. Lord, you are the sovereign one over all. You are the one who loves the lost. Open the door for me to tell people. And, and maybe even more important, help me to have a desire to tell other people. Principle one, be devoted to prayer. Keeping alert with the attitude of thanksgiving. Principle two, pray for the open doors. Pray for open doors. The, the, and then third, the principle is concerning, uh, concerning prayer is that we should pray for discernment as we share the gospel. Colossians 4.4, 4, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. When we pray... We should ask God to give us discernment. Pray that God will help you recall scripture verses that would be helpful. Pray that God will help you know when to share and how much to share. Pray that God will help you know if you're trying to force something or if he's indeed opening a door for the word. The more we pray for this and the more we actually share the gospel, the more we'll learn how to discern many things, many of the things we have questions about. That's why I gave you homework last week. Hopefully some of you did it. I asked you to pray for three things. I asked you to pray that God would give you a heart for the lost. I asked you to pray that God would open doors. And I asked you to pray that God would show you people to share the gospel with. What does the Bible teach about man's responsibility in evangelism? The first thing it teaches is to pray. Devote yourself to prayer. Keep alert and do it with thanksgiving. Pray for the loss. Pray for discernment. Second, secondly, the Bible teaches us to pursue the lost with the gospel. Pursue the lost. It doesn't mean that we, we make evangelism some kind of sanctified stalking or holy hunting. People are people. They're not targets. They're not... You know, like deer or elk, they're, they're, they're people. They're made in God's image and loved by God. So in light of this, we should pursue opportunities to talk with people about who Christ is. I don't have time to go into these, but write these down this, on this point. Luke 19.10, John 17.18, Matthew 28.19, and the whole book of Acts. <laughs> How about that? Those are examples of, uh, that serve by showing our, our responsibility to pursue the lost with the message of Christ. God has commanded us to follow Jesus by pursuing the lost with courage and compassion. As we pr pray and pursue the lost, 
The third thing the Bible teaches about man's responsibility is to pro proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. It, it was certainly the model of the disciples. Peter said it in Acts 2, 23 to 38, wicked men put him to death by nailing him to a cross, but God raised him for the, from the dead. Therefore repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He proclaims what God did and what they must do. The same approach is found in nearly every chapter of the book of Acts. Disciples are called to proclaim the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5 says we are ambassadors. I think we looked at that last week. We are ambassadors who have been entrusted with a message of reconciliation. God has given his son as a substitute for sinners. And now he implores people to be reconciled to him. In Romans 10, Paul, the same one who told us about foreknowledge and predestination and calling, now he's clearly teaching the need for us to proclaim the gospel. In verses 13 to 15, For whoever call, will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard. And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. There's a famous quote, I think it was from St. Francis of Assisi, that always comes up in this discussion about whether it's our responsibility to proclaim the gospel. A quote goes like this. Preach the gospel at all times, Use words if necessary. Heard that? In other words, our only responsibility is to preach the gospel with our lives. First, it's a misquote of what he actually said. I won't get into that. But second, you can't preach by your deeds. You can affirm and you can reflect the message by your deeds, which you must do, but you can't communicate the gospel message clearly enough to help people that aren't just moral Buddhists or moral Hindu or moral Muslim or moral Mormon. The way people know who Christ is, what he requires of them, and why we live the way we do is to proclaim with words the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean... Let me summarize. I know it's just about time. Our responsibility in evangelism is to pray. Be devoted. Pray for open doors. Pray for discernment. Pursue. Intentionally, compassionately pursue people. Proclaim the gospel. Clearly, boldly, and purely. You know, this could be one of those read your Bible more classes because in order to do that, you have to know your Bible a little bit. So we won't go there right now, but, but that's, that is that. Our job is to share the gospel. Number two, our job is to share the gospel. God's job is to save sinners. Number three, evangelism is the so sovereign act of God that we participate in. This helps us understand that success in evangelism isn't found in how many times we share, 
how many conversions we see, how many tracts we hand out, any number of things. Instead, success in evangelism, humanly speaking, rests on us speaking the gospel to the lost. You got to tell people about Christ. How they can come to know Him in a personal way. And that's what we've been called to do. I am not a fan of the late Bill, Dr. Bill Wright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. But he once said, success in evangelism is to clearly share the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and leave the results to God. And he's right. He's right. Our job is to pray and have a heart that wants to see others come to know Christ. Enough to tell others about Christ. Any questions? I think it's time to go. All right, homework. Pray, number one, pray. Pray. Asking God to give you a heart for the lost, first thing. Asking God specifically to give you, not your neighbor, a heart for the lost. Number two, pray asking God to open doors. Number three, pray asking God to show you three people to share with before this 19 weeks are over. There we, now we're starting to get into a little tougher stuff, okay? But ask, ask God to show you three people. Maybe he'll show you more, maybe he'll show you less. But think of three people. Listen, I know that family is hardest. I know that. I know that. And so you have to be very wise and very discerning in that. But it starts with prayer. Number two, write down in one sentence what you think the gospel is. I mean, just really. I know, I know you can go to a scripture and, and that, but, but think about it. What is the gospel? It can be a run-on sentence, but, and, you know, maybe two sentences. But clearly write down what you believe the gospel is, and we'll discuss it. Okay? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. I do pray that you would give us a heart for the lost. It starts with us and... And, uh, but it's a comforting fact to know that it doesn't depend on us. So we'll just trust you with, with this in our lives. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.